0: good evening. If you turn your Bible to Genesis chapter 6, thank you, Adam, praise team, band, and Regen for leading us in worship. That's the biggest youth choir I've ever seen. Yeah. 76 in there. Okay. Uh, Now I'm less mad at you for not listening to my sermons. Yeah. So. We just completed the BPs MVP's. I wish you could have been in there. 4 weeks of these young people taking notes, memorizing scripture, and on uh, September 11th, they're going to sing in the morning service. Did you know that, did. Okay. You just learned it. Okay. And they're going to sing to God be the glory. They've memorized that, and they've been taught a whole lot. About uh, Fannie Crosby um, from Macy Maddox, and we are so grateful uh, for them and their efforts, and we're gonna be blessed. So be praying for them. I told them, You're gonna sing in front of a thousand people, and their eyeballs got this big. <laughs> I don't think it had occurred to them until I shared that. But anyway, pray with me, and we'll uh, get into uh, Genesis chapter 6. Lord, thank you uh, that we can sing, we can confess. Uh, that Christ is the story, his is the glory. And may that be the case tonight, even as we look at this passage that has stumped the greatest of minds through the history of the church. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Now at the time of the Reformation, of course you know that really the Reformation began, it didn't happen out of the blue, but officially... It happened as Luther, you know, posted those uh, 95 theses on the wall at Wittenberg in 1517. But at the time of the Reformation, the Roman Catholics were saying that the laity should not read the Bible because only uh, the church hierarchy could understand it. In fact, the bishops in that day said, if you put the Bible in the hands... Of the common person, the laity, uh, every man shall be a babbler on the Bible and a meddler with the scripture. Indeed, uh, that term obscurity was often used. On account of its obscurity, scripture is not fit for lay people. That was the argument. And so the reformers did not say that everything in the Bible is equally clear. But they did believe with all their hearts that the central message of the Bible is so very clear. We just sang about it. Christ the story, his the glory. It is sufficiently clear to make wise the simple, as Psalm 19 says. In other words, they held and believed that the Bible teaches its own clarity. Or the fancy term, the perspicuity of the Bible. Uh, In fact... The clarity of Scripture uh, was at the heart of Martin Luther's controversy with the Roman Catholic Church. In fact, in the New Testament, uh, the clarity of Scripture is assumed when Jesus, Jesus will often say, have you not read? And if you consider the fact that virtually the large majority of the New Testament epistles were written not to the pastors or the leaders of the church, but the church Uh, As a whole, in fact, the Apostle Paul will address children as he is writing to the church at Colossae and, and the church at Ephesus. But with that said, there is one qualification when we talk about the clarity of Scripture. The doctrine of the clarity of Scripture does not indicate that all Scripture is equally clear. There are some passages that are more difficult to understand and uh, process than others. And sometimes we can get so lost on those issues that are less clear that we really lose the burden of what is clear in that particular passage. And we need to keep that in mind as we come to Genesis 6 verses 1 to 8. Well, that brings us to verses uh, 1 to 5 in our passage. And what we see here is that humankind is multiplying on the earth, just as they were commanded to do, but so is sin. As humankind multiplies, sin multiplies. Look with me in verse 1. When man began to multiply on the face of the land... And daughters were born to them. Now, not only does this verse function as an introduction to what follows, it also summarizes the story about the rapid increase of, of Adam's progeny. So this is just a, a kind of a, you'd almost say a, a Janus passage. Maybe you're not familiar with that term, but you're familiar with the term January. Uh, January is the month that we look back on the previous year and, and look forward to the, the, the upcoming year. Well, the, that's what a Janus passage does. Uh, it looks back, but, but it also looks forward. And so that's what we're seeing here in this passage. Mankind is still fulfilling God's mandate to multiply and fill the earth, but instead of reproducing godly image bearers, Instead of doing that, humanity is producing sinners. Humanity is producing sin. In other words, even in the areas where God is blessing and the multiplication of children is a blessing, right? But even in the areas where God is blessing, it becomes a stage for the intrusion of evil. All right? Well, look with me in verse 2, in one of the clearest passages of all the Bible. Just kidding. The sons of God saw that the daughters of men, or man, were attractive. And they took as their wives any they chose. So who are these sons of God? Who are these daughters of man? Where do they come from? They appear without fanfare. They appear without explanation. Well, let's think of the obvious first. Moses' assumption. Now, who is he writing to? He's writing to a people who have been redeemed out of Egypt, and they're making their way into the promised land. And so his assumption is that they uh, will readily identify who he's talking about here. But if his audience knew, it's been lost to us. So all we can do is raise the possibilities of what verse two means, okay? While at the same time recognizing we can get at the heart of this text. We can get at the main point of this passage, even if not every verse is equally clear to us. And whatever Moses means here, we have to know It has something to do with the immediate cause of the flood. Moses is setting up why there's going to be a universal flood on the earth where God's judgment will be poured out on sinners. So there are two main views. There's more than two uh, views, but there's two main views in church history. And let me tell you... um, both views are represented by godly and faithful people. There may be of these two views represented in, in our church tonight. This is not a dividing issue at all. Um, on the scale of a one to three triage, this is a four on the triage. But there are two main views uh, in church history. First of all, the sons of gods here are angels. So in this view, they defied God by moving outside their appointed realm and marrying human women. Now, this view really started being advocated by the Jews around the second century BC. Why? Because of an apocryphal book called the Book of First Enoch. Now, in the Book of First Enoch, the story is told over 36 chapters. So you We're going to have to distill it real quickly here, um, which is referred to as the Book of the Watchers. And so it says that these angels, the sons of God, saw the human daughters, lusted after them, cohabitated with them, and then they reproduced giants known as Nephilim, who then rebelled against their parents, and that is behind The universal flood. God is going to judge that kind of behavior. And and so proponents will also appeal uh, to the New Testament. Where it is argued that the apostles allude to Genesis 6 here. In referring to these very fallen angels. So for instance in Jude chapter 6. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority. But left their proper dwelling he has kept an eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Or you can say, uh, another passage that's often used is 2 Peter 2 verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, um, and he's talking about the judgment there, And so they will appeal to that. Well, here's some drawbacks to that view. And again, uh, we're going to have a brother here in October, um, one of my best friends, Jim Hamilton, who's going to be preaching in this pulpit, that takes this position. So this is not a dividing issue, but I do uh, see some major drawbacks to this position. I don't hold this position personally. And here's the reason. First, from beginning to end, chapter 6 seems to focus on humanity and its outcome, not angels and their punishment. The flood is God's judgment against man, not against angels. That's one of my reasons for holding another position. And there's no reference to angel culpability, when you read the flood narrative. Remember, this is is the pretext or the, uh, the context that leads up to the flood. Second, there's no biblical evidence that angels can procreate, none. In fact, Jesus seems to infer the opposite when he says in Matthew 22, for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage but are like angels in heaven. Now think about this. The reason I hold that position is that we were given the mandate to procreate as image bearers. We were called to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth as image bearers through procreation. Angels were not given that mandate. They're not image bearers. Okay? That's another reason I don't hold this position. Third... Angels appear later in Genesis, in Genesis 19, and they're not called the sons of God. Now, they're called the sons of God in Job, but not in Moses, okay? They're called angels. They're called angels in Genesis chapter 19. Fourth, first Enoch certainly interprets this passage, like I said earlier, as angels and, and, and human daughters, but... First Enoch is not a canonical book. And so why would we make the argument that it has an inerrant, infallible interpretation of a canonical book? Fifth, and finally, the context strongly stresses the heinousness of human sin. That's perhaps the, the strongest argument for me. In the text it is said that God is angry with man. He's not angry with angels. Now, we certainly know that there were, as a realm of angels who, who rebelled against God, and, and, and we're not exactly sure when and how that took place, but we do know that Lucifer rebelled against God, and he he carried perhaps even a third of the angels with him in that rebellion. But here's my view, the second view, and It's the view that was held by Augustine. It was the view that was held by the reformers. And and I I take this view lightly. I I recognize you may have an alternative view, and that is absolutely okay. The view I take is that the sons of God are given the context from the line of Seth, Genesis chapter five. This is the godly line. Uh, This is the line where Uh, God is going to bring about Messiah, the sons of God, the Seth. Of course, we know Noah is in that line. And the daughters of men are from the line of Cain, Genesis chapter 4. So I think the context gives us uh, the interpretation. Genesis chapter 4, we have the uh, the daughters of men. They're coming from the city of man, and they're cohabitating with the godly line. And I believe that to be uh, the the correct position because, again, we have seen uh, over the last two messages, there are two lines, okay, two lines, one being from the city of God, one from being the city of man. In fact, the flood account that we're going to get into fairly soon is actually embedded with the genealogy of Seth okay, because Noah comes from the line of, of Seth. And then we're going to trace uh, Abraham through the line of, of Shem, okay? Uh, finally, when you look at the Moses' writings, Genesis to Deuteronomy, there are numerous warnings, numerous warnings against the um, intermarriage. Now, we're not talking about uh, interracial marriage. We're talking about interfaith marriage. Uh, he's writing, remember, he's writing to people who are going into the land and they will meet the Canaanites. And he is reminding them, if you go in that land and you cohabitate with those of a different faith, you're going to apostatize. And that's exactly what happened in history. And so I think this is the first warning. This is the first warning. Is he, he says, this is the effects When a godly man, godly woman, cohabitates, marries someone who does not believe the way you believe. And this is an important message to our young people. I don't care what he or she looks like. I don't care how successful that person might be. If that person cannot enjoy and love your highest love, you have taken on chaos into your world and life for the rest of your life. This is such an important message for, for all of our young people. Um, but whatever your view is, the emphasis clearly is that humankind is beyond self-help. We cannot help ourselves. There was that commercial back in the 80s. I've fallen and I, I can't, what was it? Can't, can't get up. That's what's going on here. But I want you to note the parallel here. The sons of God... Saw, okay? They saw, and note that parallel with the fall of Eve in the garden. She saw, she saw that the fruit was good for food and pleasing to the eyes. So here the object isn't fruit, it's the daughters of man. This is unmitigated lust, Driving these people. Indeed, the ways of the serpent are very deceptive. In Genesis chapter 4, the seed of the serpent tried to end the line of Seth, the godly line, how? With murder, the murder of, of Abel. Here, he is seeking to compromise that line with unholy unions. All right? Well, notice in verse three, then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, his days shall be 120 years. Now, because of the sinful conduct that was produced by these mixed marriages, can you imagine the confusion of the children? Who are being raised in a home where mom and dad have two completely different worldviews? All right, because of that and all the chaos that are the results of that, God is going to pronounce a judgment, and so He promises to withdraw life from humankind and so end its sinful conduct. That's why judgment comes to put an end to rebellion. But what does 120 years mean? Well, again, uh, it's not as clear as you might want it to be. Some would say, well, that means that now man's only going to live to be 120. Well, the the problem with that is that you get to Genesis 11, right after the the Tower of Babel, and there's a genealogy of Shem. And so many in in the family of Shem live way beyond 120 years. And we know the Bible doesn't contradict itself. So what does the 120 here mean? Well, I think that God is actually declaring that humankind only has 120 years left to repent before the flood. And again, I take that lightly, but there are many scholars who who take that to mean he's gonna give them 120 years. That's his patience, that's his forbearance, and then judgment is going to come. Well, notice in verse four, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. Now, notice, in those days. I I don't think the Nephilim are the product of the the sons of God and the the daughters of men. It appears, the the Hebrew seems to indicate here, that they were living during that time. They were in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men. So they preceded the, the, the unholy cohabitation. Um, And they bore children to them. Um, Those were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. So what are the Nephilim? Well, in Monty's Bible, it says giants. And that fits the semantic range. that, That word can mean giants. And so that's a fine translation. But the fact that modern translations don't translate it. Uh, They just give you the word from the original Hebrew, tells you they are not so sure. Now, these are conservative translators. We're not talking about people who don't believe the word of God, but they're not so sure how to translate it. And so they just keep the word as it is, the Nephilim, Nephilim. Now, I don't believe they are the progeny of the unholy uh, unions because it appears they were on the earth as this was taking place. They preceded that. So who are they? Well, notice the last part of verse four. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. That's a positive statement. They may have been giants, may have been tall, but more importantly, they were men of renown. Uh, They had been on the earth, men of renown. So I take this to mean, and again, I'm taking this lightly I don't take John three sixteen lightly. That's pretty clear, right? This is less clear. So I, I'm going to give you the best interpretation I can in recognizing while the word of God's inerrant, I'm not inerrant. Um, I take this to mean that these were the obedient followers of Yahweh, of the Lord, trying to keep the name of the Lord alive among an increasingly wicked generation. If that's the case, I pray God raises up a generation of Nephilim here here at Lakeview as he has for, for many years. So in verse three, God makes clear that humanity won't have the benefit of having that message anymore. Indeed, verse five records the consequence of verses one to four. So verse five, now this is, I think, one of those important verses in the Bible with regard to humankind's plight. Verse five, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So here we're told the Lord saw. Uh, it reminds us of Genesis one. When God created all things, and it says, and he saw that it was good. But here, what did he see? What he sees is not good. And I also think there's an intentional mimicry of the sons of God who saw the daughters of men, and, he, and, and they saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, but what God sees isn't beautiful. He sees wickedness. We need to learn to see as God sees how lightly we take our sin. But God does not take our sin lightly at all. Now, I want you to note the depravity that's communicated. If you you were going to explain the doctrine of pervasive pravity from one verse of the Bible, uh, you'd be hard-pressed to find a more comprehensive verse than Genesis 6 verse 5. First of all, I want you to note the intensity. And I get the descriptions here from John Murray, a great theologian. Um, So this is not original with me, this this description. But notice the intensity of the sin. The wickedness of man was great in the earth. So there's an intensity to this sin. But notice there is the wickedness or the inwardness of this sin. It's not just outward behavior, okay? Okay. Uh, The intention of the thoughts of his heart. The intention of the thoughts of his heart. There was a movement recently that says, um, if you have uh, perverse sexual desire, it's not a sin unless you act on it. Well, that just goes in complete conflict with what Moses writes here. He's indicting the inwardness of the sin. The intention of the thoughts of his heart. There's also the totality of this sin. Notice, every thought. Every thought. Isn't that scary? Every thought. And then there's the constancy. Continually. Continually. The intention of the thoughts of his heart were only... Uh, every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And then there's the exclusiveness of this sin. It was only evil, only evil. That is humankind's state, naturally speaking, apart from the grace of God. It's horrifying. And it's the state of humankind today as well. These were not a special breed of sinners. These were sinners from the line of Adam, just like you and I. Um, Paul Tripp, in, in a... Um, A recent book that he wrote on on theology, What We Believe, says something about sin that I think is appropriate here. It's one of the the best, most captivating uh, statements on sin that I've read recently. And here's what he says. Sin is an evil monster masquerading as your best friend. Sin is a slave trader masquerading as your liberator. Sin is a grim grim reaper, masquerading as a life giver. Sin is darkness, masquerading as light. Sin is foolishness, masquerading as wisdom. Sin is disease, masquerading as a cure. No matter how it presents itself to you, it is never what it appears to be and will never deliver what it promises. Well said. And that's why when the Lord sees sin, he always responds. Imagine a God who did not respond to sin, given what sin is. He does in two ways in the, as we look at the, uh, the final part of our passage. Um, he grieves over it, and he plans. All right, notice, first of all, God's grief as sin multiplies. So we've seen that as humanity multiplies, sin multiplies. Now, does that mean we shouldn't have children? No, it means we should have children and then evangelize them with the gospel, Okay? But as humankind multiplies, sin multiplies. And here we see God's grief as sin multiplies. Look at me in verse 6. And the Lord regretted, some translations read, repented, that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Now, what gives here, considering the fact that God is immutable? I'm going to give you a fancy term here, but we need to know this term, and impassable. Immutable just simply means that God doesn't change in any way. If he did, we could not hold fast to his promises. If he was as volatile as you and I are, we couldn't hold fast to his promises. He's immutable. He never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's the immutability of God. But he's also impassable. Which means that God does not experience emotional change in any way, nor does he suffer. After his God is, um, if God is subject to emotional change, how do we know, know that he will stay true to his promises? Uh, if he's as emotional as, as we are, uh, oftentimes uh, our actions are predicated on our volatile um emotional state which is so absolutely sub-christian but that does not mean having said that that he's stoic it does not mean that he's indifferent or that he's without emotions i didn't say he's without emotions he has emotions but he does not have mood swings all of his emotion, emotions are rooted in his holy character so this is an um, fancy term, anthropopathism. What do we mean by that? The scripture is attributing human-like emotions to God for the benefit of the reader. Um, so that we can see what God thinks about sin. Okay? So that we can see he is a personal God and he takes our sin seriously. So we can grieve the Holy Spirit. So, just because God knows uh, what's going to happen does not preclude God from experiencing holy emotions, holy emotions, not like ours, and expressing appropriate reactions to what he sees. That brings us to uh, verse 7. We've seen God's grief as sin multiplies, and now we see God's plan. As sin multiplies. Verse 7. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. And again, he is not sorrowful like we are sorrowful. He is sorrowful like a God who is omniscient, infinitely uh, all-knowing, and holy is sorrowful. But this verb here is literally blot out. What does that mean? It means a complete uh, removal of something. Verse 7, apart from every other verse, may be one of the most hopeless uh, verses in the Bible. But that's not the end of the story. Praise God for that. If I stopped here... You would all leave and go home and get in a fetal position and suck your thumb for the rest of the week. But he does not stop here. Notice in the midst of the judgment, we see the grace of God. Verse eight. But, but, thank you, Lord, for the the holy buts of scripture. But Noah found favor In the eyes of the Lord. The the brevity of verse 8, I think, is important after the sweeping announcement of judgment in verse 7. Now, this word favor means grace. This is the first time in the Bible we read about grace, right here. You can translate favor here. So, grace is unmerited favor. Noah found favor in the eyes of God. In other words, Noah didn't deserve it. Noah didn't deserve uh, favor or grace. It's not something he earned. Um, It means that the recipient here, the recipient of favor, the recipient of grace, Noah here, actually deserved the judgment too. Here we see God's grace is the only hope. And we're going to see more about Noah. He's a man of faith. Grace is appropriated by faith, right? We're going to see that next time. But this is the first occurrence. Now, what does it mean? What does grace mean? It is unmerited divine favor in spite of positive demerit. Noah would have been described in verse 5 too. Noah wasn't some special breed. Uh, He was a sinner just like those in verse 5. But he found favor. And we're going to see it is by grace alone through faith alone. Okay? But he had that positive demerit as well. And that's why he needed grace. He needed favor. So let's close this out. Just how relevant is this passage? Well, Jesus thought it was really relevant. Because um, the message that he pronounced parallels this passage. Uh, He says that this corrupt world will one day be swept away by God's judgment, just like in the days of Noah. Hear these words from Matthew 24. This is the words of Jesus. Not that the words of Jesus are more inspired than any other uh, passage in the Bible, but these are the words of Jesus. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. So we equate entering the ark, Noah, entering the ark and the coming of the Son of Man. Uh, Jesus is equating those two. But notice, eating, what are they doing? Drinking, marrying, giving in marriage. These aren't necessarily sinful. But Jesus said judgment came. It came. They were doing these normal things, and it says unaware. Unaware. That's the verse he, or the word he uses. They were unaware until the flood came. So what were they unaware of? The holiness of God. The exceeding sinfulness of man. That even doing normal things like eating and drinking and marrying and, and giving to marriage, apart from faith and commitment to the Lord, is worthy of judgment. They were unaware. They were unaware. Um, they were unaware of a human Savior who offered A refuge who is that human savior well in the context it was a man named Noah Uh, he offered a man named Noah whose name means rest who would offer refuge but they scorned it they spurned it what was that refuge entering the ark and the coming of the son of man will be like that day of the flood but more devastating more devastating But until that day, here's the deal. He offers every sinner. What is a sinner? Read verse 5 and see it as a mirror. He offers every person described in verse 5. That's you and me. He offers every sinner Noah. That is, he offers us rest. He offers us rest if we turn from our sin. Sin is... Very much like chapter 6, verse 5. And we run in repentance and faith to God's ark of safety, which is not a wooden structure. It's a person. One who says, come to me, all you that labor, and I will give you Noah. I will give you rest. And that's the promise for every believer It's also a promise to those who do not yet believe. And so as Adam and uh, our musicians come forward, we want to give you an opportunity to respond in faith. The heart is universally and perennially restless until it finds its rest, okay, in Noah, in the greater Noah, in the one who offers eternal and comprehensive rest the lord jesus christ and that comes by coming to him on his terms not your terms your terms are so flawed by sin you couldn't stand the presence of god without immediate judgment but if you come on his terms the bible says your sins will be forgiven and he will give you rest won't you respond to that as we stand and as we sing thanks for worshiping with us today